Hello and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. My name is Richard Sverson and I'm joined today by my colleague Andres Kala, who is Montel's Madrid Bureau Chief. Welcome Andres. Happy to be here. We are at the Euroelectric Annual Conference in the beautiful city of Florence, as you can probably hear from the background. And we have the great pleasure in welcoming to the pod Marcus Hall, CEO of Vattenfall and the new president of Euroelectric, as well as Francesco Starazze, CEO of Enel and the outgoing president of the Trade Association. Today we'll look at several issues in the transition to a low-carbon economy, including public acceptance or not of renewables and the future shape of EU energy policy amid a potentially fragmented EU Parliament following the European elections this week. Welcome, Magnus, and congratulations on your new position. Thank you very much. We're at a critical point in the energy transition. Yeah. We need to um, build more renewable capacity, yes. but there is an issue of public acceptance here mm. that I think was highlighted in the conference yeah. today that you know, when you actually start building them, people don't want them in their backyard. No. No. But, yeah, yeah. but they want the concept, but yeah. not the idea. How, how do you bridge this gap between you know, people welcoming yeah. green growth but yeah. not wanting it in their backyard? For us, it's very. I mean, I think it's very much about engaging locally, talk to people, and get uh, sort of get uh, the confidence in what you're going to do. Because people, when the, when you do that, and you really take their views into account, normally you can create a good discussion. Mm. So the local stakeholder management to deal with that is a, a very important part of this development. Uh, and I would say that that is the first thing we're going to do because if we start forcing these issues, I think we might have a problem. Another development that I see is a natural development is more offshore wind because you will be able to build, you know, um, a much more capacity where you don't really have to deal with uh, people's uh, individual views on, on on how it looks or another thing. So mm. we will have to do a parallel development as I see it. There is a big debate in, in Norway at the moment and big opposition to onshore wind, especially in the west of the country near Trondheim. Yeah. Uh, is there, is there, are there similar uh, issues in Sweden? Well, certainly in the southern part of Sweden you can see that. So, uh, and, and that's why we concentrate on a big part of the development in the northern part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, you, you have to, this with stakeholder development and people's views are important and we just have to sort of plow through it and make, it, uh, make, them, make them part of it. Another issue that is, was very, very clear today is that with the upcoming EU elections, mm-hmm. there's going to be increased fragmentation in the European Parliament. Mm-hmm. Is this something that concerns you in your position for Vattenfall and Euroelectric? And what could it do to EU policy? Could it, put a sort of, could it slow it down to snail's pace? I still see a lot of traction in the climate question, so I think that there will be enough pressure to keep that going. Mm-hmm. Of course, it might... might Need, there is a need for an increased sort of um, intervention from our side in, in talks with others. Mm-hmm. But I don't really see this sort of as a, as a game changer, no. Since there's a discussion in Sweden um, about uh, reversing the de- decision to close nuclear reactors, what, what's Vattenfall's view on this? Well, our view is the same as always. We took a decision to close them and we are going to close them. Mm-hmm. And of course we have revisited the issue, but we can't see that there is any you know, uh, business case in, in, in uh, re- reinvesting and restarting. Uh, and one of the reactors, Ringhouse 2, is actually also under special permission to be run to the le- end of this year. Otherwise, after that, we have to do a significant rebuild of part of the reactor in order to make it run further. So that's absolutely not the possible. Econo- yeah, economics don't make is, sense. There is, there, that's a huge re- rebuild. And those two reactors were never planned to go beyond 2025 anyway in mm. terms of prolongation uh, planning. So for us, it's clear we're going to close them. Ringhouse 2 this year, Ringhouse 1 next year. 
you're involved in an interconnector from Norway to, to Scotland. Yes. There's been some issue of, or some have voiced the opinion that that should be sold to, to the TSO. If there is a view that they want to own and operate it, we, I think they want to. I, we don't have a view on that. We don't mm. need to own it. We think mm. it's a good idea to build it. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. And then if we find other owners, we're perfectly happy to make that uh, you know, go in either direction. So mm. for us, it's, it's, it's the important thing is to build it, not to operate it. Yeah. You've said clearly that you want to um, become carbon neutral within a generation. That's Vattenfall policy. What does that, um, how you're active in, in many wind auctions across across Europe. How is, how, could you say a few words about how your, your, your strategy or your ideas here? Our, our aim is to make fossil-free living uh, possible within one generation, that's what we talk about, and I, I just make sure that generation really means a commitment to the next generation. The kids who are born today, when they get their kids, we should be there. Right. And so for us it means building more renewables, and we talk about fossil-free, but of course the, the investments we are doing now is in wind power mainly. We do some in solar, but really in wind power, and a big part of that is in offshore. So that's where you see our participation in auctions, because mm -hmm. we do believe we are good at that. Mm -hmm. But then we also develop a lot of business uh, around our customers, where we're supplying, helping them to, to uh, electrify transportation, mm -hmm. electrify um, industry. We are involved in several different projects there, where we look at using hydrogen. But but so so we have we have an, a strategy for an electrification arena. That's mm. what we view ourselves as, both internally in how we deal with change, but also externally how we can offer new solutions towards transportation, heat customers, industry customers. My colleague Andres Carla, who's um, the Madrid bureau chief. Uh, Andres, you have some questions for for Magnus. I certainly do. Uh, going back a little, not just to the fragmentation that we could see in the in your parliament, but actually uh, what we see throughout Europe. We see a northern Europe, we see a southern Europe. Baden Fall, uh, for example, is a it's a renewable champion, it's a wind champion. Yet its uh, its presence in southern Europe is uh, testimonial, to put it in a way. However, there is a, a lot of wind and solar potential. Yeah. Italy's not picking up. Spain, again, is not really picking up. The plants are formidable. What is missing from the equation? And I go back perhaps to the answer we had uh, on the screen early on the Euroelectric Conference, that it's a regulatory stalling, uh, that it's just not clear to, clear to attract investment. Do you see uh, this as a problem? Well, to be honest, we are sort of uh, geographically limiting ourselves to a certain extent to Northern Europe. That doesn't mean that we will move further out uh, in due time. Uh, so we're really not that versed with the situation in Italy or Spain. We're looking now to the next phase, going from where we are to France, where we're participating, and I think we will take a stepwise approach on that. But we also have um, a considerable amount of projects available in the geographical area where we are, so we think that we can cater for the, the growth that we are looking for internally as we speak uh, with the situation we have. But we, you know, for the future, we don't rule out anything. So uh, let, let's see. But in the near term, it's, it's not uh, on our agenda. And just a couple of other things. Uh, all Everything we've been talking about is within Europe. Yeah. But, of course, we have to deal with China and U.S. tariff war. We have to deal with the conflict, potential conflict uh, in the Middle East. All of these issues will have an impact on Europe. 
what is uh, uh, how, how can this uh, uh, threaten our own projects, our Euro own European projects in the long term, in the in the mid term? I, I, you know, in general, I see uh, an increased concern over security, perhaps in Europe. I can see that very much in my own country because of geopolitical changes. But and that might mean that it will be more, you know, investments in grids and, and critical infrastructure as such will be more controlled. I think we can see that development coming up more and more. But apart from that, I don't see any real threats to what we want to do within the sort of the Euroelectric framework coming the next 30 years. Uh, there I'm not so uh, worried in, in relation to what you just mentioned, apart from the security questions. And just finally, when do you actually expect a realistic sprouting of the power to gas? Uh, I think we're looking very difficult to say, but I think we have a 10-year period before before we really see it commercially driven. But in the meantime, you might find support systems that make it possible for certain parts. I, and this, I think we need to do something like that to make sure that we can operate it and understand it. So you might take blue hydrogen, you know, if it's cheaper, and then you start with that, and, and you see if we can run the process. You need a lot of storage knowledge, how you treat hydrogen, and, and in order to make that power-to-gas work. So I think it's for the future, but I think a lot of batteries and other storage solutions might come a little bit earlier. But they need subsidies? I think they do. They're not really commercially viable today. That's my view, but on the other hand, I'm not an expert. Thank you very much, Magnus. Thank you so much. The next part of the podcast focuses on Italy and, and Southern Europe, and it's a great honor and pleasure to have Francesco Starazzi here, who is CEO of Enel and the outgoing president of, of uh, Euroelectric, the, the European Electricity Trade Organization. Francesco, welcome. Thank you very much. And... Uh Good morning or good afternoon. I don't know when this podcast will be heard. <laughs> Probably go out <laughs> in the morning. Well, yes. yeah, exactly, to all the listeners. That's a, that's a, that's a great message. Yeah. I'd like to start, Francesco. We're, there's a lot of talk today about uh, the European elections and the potential mm -hmm. fragmentation of, of the parliament. Is this a concern for you or for your electric? Uh, and generally, is there, is there a threat maybe that the carbon transition could be slowed down? Frankly, I don't think Low so. Low carbon transition. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think there is a risk of that. I mm. think there is a wide open consensus from most of the political parties around Europe that this is a transition that has to happen mm -hmm. and that it is beneficial for Europe, partly for the world also. Um, so we're not concerned. Well, we're concerned about other things, not mm. this one. Let's put mm. it this way. So... We think from an energy policy standpoint, the commission that ends now has done an excellent work, has left the clean mobility package and then an uh, energy package uh, in excellent conditions. I don't expect major changes or impacts because mm. of these elections at all. That's a reassuring um, opinion, yeah. I think, because there's, there's, there's certainly worries out there, I think, mm. that suddenly you know, things could, could change in a, in a not advantageous direction. You made some quite interesting comments today about companies either choosing to defend their legacy or to move forward. Could you yeah. say a little bit about that? You know, I think it's very important for the utility sector in, 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 in Europe as a whole. Let's say that the utility industry... Like many others, but this is a very heavy intensive, capital intensive industry. So all utilities in Europe have a legacy of assets that sit on their books, that are part of its, their culture, their decades of investment in the past. The 
trend uh, every time that this happens of an industry is invariably to try and squeeze value out of these assets the more you can. Mm. Uh, and year after year, this uh, reinforces itself. You know, if you were able to work uh, money out of depreciated assets or assets that were built years and years ago, you can try and do it again and again and again. And this is, I think, nothing wrong with that. I think it is, however, uh, an attitude that might prevent you from seeing what happens. What happens around you, what happens next to you, and what happens on these assets, to these assets. So I think utilities need to take a step back and say, let's revisit the value of these assets going forward and separate those that still make sense, provided they are perhaps refurbished or perhaps digitized or or used in a different way. And notably, this is the field of grids and distribution grids. And let's look at those assets that have basically no future and, and say, guys, do we need to still keep them up? Why is it that they don't have any future? Is there anything else that will displace them? So let's look at that. Thermal plants fall in this category, not all of them. I think it is a year after year after year weeding out process. So you should take a year view and say, I have all these plants, which of them have no future? In these plants that have no future, stop putting money and just plan their exit. Which plants have a future of, say, 5 to 10 years? Mm. Then these plants, keep them in good conditions, work them efficiently, improve if you can them. Mm. And which plants, I don't know. Those plants, don't put any money on them and revisit next year. Mm. So that progressively, you phase them out. Mm. Mm. And I think this process will take uh, 10 to 15, 20 years, depending Mm. on the age of the plants. Uh, this is variable in, in many countries in a different system. But if you take this detached view, don't fall in love with them. Just mm-hmm. look at them or what mm-hmm. they are worth. And it's not a disgrace if a plant gets out of line. It's done its job. Mm. But there's something else and that's, that, that kicks in. Mm. So take renewables and, and say, which renewable technology can I put in place in this country? What is... Uh, the endowment that Mother Nature gave him, more wind, more solar, more whatever, and they plan the substitution. I think this is something that uh, we're doing now every year uh, on all our portfolios, and it provides and it proves to be very efficient. Mm-hmm. It's a very way, it's a very organized and smooth way of doing this transition in an orderly fashion without creating problems to society. So it's a way for for the sector to survive, I think, for the company, for, for yeah, it's, it's large uh, companies to... to rather than, yeah, it's survive and also improve the profile because actually if you progressively decarbonize, you find out that your energy mix is going to cost less and less because the more zero marginal cost energy you inject in the mix, uh, the wholesale prices go down. And also they become less volatile when compared to commodities or exchange uh, or, or currency evaluations. So it's a positive improvement and a de-risking of your profile. It's not only survival, it's improvement. Also joining me is Andres Cala, our our Madrid Bureau Chief. Andres, you have some questions for Francesco. I do. and uh, um, Funny you would uh, mention the transition from thermal uh, into renewable. One of the uh, results of the uh, uh, during the uh, your electric 
uh, poll is that unclear regulatory frameworks are the most important investment challenge on the, ro on the road to 2050. And this is what we see in Southern Europe. Certainly we see all the benefits of renewable, of uh, phasing out old coal-fired stations in Spain, uh, old gas-fired stations in, in Italy, etc., etc. However, renewables seem to be uh, getting a slow start. Is this regulatory-driven? I mean, is it the lack of, of regulatory uh, certitude that, that's holding them back? Basically, it is not this. I think in uh, across Europe and, of course, also in Southern Europe, the issue is that uh, we all knew that the Commission was preparing a new, a new clean energy package. So, and we all knew that this, as a result of this clean uh, energy package, the member states would have to issue their own climate and energy plans and then regulate around them. So the industry is basically saying, okay, that's the direction, and prepare for that. So everybody's developing projects, because we know this is coming. The industry is clear in that. Now what's missing is that the directives that were issued have been implemented in those plans that each member state has submitted to the Commission, and we know that the Commission has time to revise them and come back and say, you know, please change this, please change that, I, uh, you need to adapt a little more. And we expect that major countries such as Italy, Spain, uh, France, uh, Germany will issue the new regulatory framework on renewables the next 2020, end of 2019. So it's just the waiting of this process to, to, to be carried out until the end. There's nothing else than that. So it's just a question of having this new regulatory framework finally unroll and unfold in front of us. You will see that picking the speed of investment picking up through 2020, 21, 22. In Southern Europe specifically, uh, that's uh, a time frame we could count on? Uh, from Actually, you probably see Spain has already moved. I mean, uh, Italy will probably pick up next year. Greece has never really slowed down, although but it's a tiny part of the, of the system. But the same will happen in France and in Germany, the major markets across Europe in that time frame. The experience is that around the world, as regulated or government-run auctions on new capacity, on new renewable capacity unfold and prices show their competitiveness, then large companies and private sector kicks in and it shows interest. And that will probably come in Europe a year or two later. So Europe is kind of in this, in this building up moment right now. It's not, I don't think there is any signal of lack of interest. Rather, it's just uh, everybody wants to be ready when the rules are out. What will this massive growth in, in solar, and specifically uh, rooftop solar, do for the business model of utilities such as yourself? I mean, in some ways, that can, can we eat away at revenues? Well, you know, we have a direct experience of that because Italy has, at this very moment, more than 700,000 solar rooftops installation for um, 12,000, 13,000 megawatts. So we've seen that already. There are two answers uh, to your question. One is if the system has a digital network, in that case the growth happens in a, I would say, rather painless way. There is no real problem of that big uh, amount of capacity coming at medium to low voltage. And there are huge potential pockets of value creation for those utilities that 
enable customers to do this. If you don't have a fully digitized network, there is certain threshold beyond which the grid will have a problem to accommodate access, I mean, large amount of distributed power. So this growth will reach to a certain point and then start to stall. That's why we insist so much uh, that uh, it's a rush to digitize network. Networks need to be digitized. The energy union, the European Energy Union, can only work if we actually coordinate, and I know we all know this, uh, but part of that coordination is uh, well, their tariffs. <clears throat> In this case, I'm referring specifically to the German announced decision to increase gas tariffs on the border with Italy, and of course to Italy specifically, this could uh, raise, or should raise, your power prices, obviously your gas prices as well. Is this a concern for Italy, for NL? Not much, because not for NL, because we don't, we buy very little on the spot market. Actually, we have long-term contracts that don't have this kind of problem. But obviously, if uh, this kind of, say, fragmented behavior becomes a norm, this is not going to be helpful in general in any uh, energy market. And the moment you take an energy market and cut it into pieces, the overall cost increase is obvious. So this will happen, it can happen in different directions. You know, So overall, we think this is not a good policy in general. At European level. Francesco, thank you very much. Thank you. We finished this week's pod uh, by talking to Christian Ruby, the Secretary General of Euroelectric. It's a great pleasure and a privilege to have you here, Christian. Thanks. Welcome. Thanks. I'd like to start off by uh, talking about something that was brought up yesterday, and I think 45% of the delegates at this conference, one of the challenges they felt was the regulatory uncertainty. I wonder if you could comment on that. I mean, isn't the part of the issue here is we live in a democracy. You know, governments change quite regularly. We haven't got the ability to set 10-year targets. So how achievable is a, 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 you know, a concrete, stable regulatory environment? Well, you know what? I think in a certain way it's natural for the companies to feel a certain level of regulatory uncertainty in the sense that we've really been spending the last five years revamping every single aspect of the legislation, mm. uh, the renewable targets, the efficiency targets, the decarbonization targets, uh, the market rules, everything has been changed. So so the fact that there's a certain level of uncertainty is not so strange. Mm. Um, I think uh, the next few years will be about let's say, letting the dust settle just a little bit because we need now all this European regulation to, to be transposed into national rules and, and, um, and legislation so that companies know more or less what they're dealing with. Then we need uh, the national plans that, that are also a new tool to firm up we need to see them gradually come in line with the 10-year with the targets that have been set by the Commission. Mm. And I think once that's happened, so when we meet, let's say, in, in Dublin next year mm. or, or one and a half years mm. from now, I think people will have a better sense of, of, um, of regulatory certainty and knowing where things are going. By then, we'll see uh, the balancing markets, uh, the services markets, the new market model, everything mm. become implemented and, and have national plans for the delivery of, of renewables and so on and so forth. The last thing I want to say here is that we probably need to get used to the fact that, that now, in two years and in five years, we're still living through an enormous technological disruption which is mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. a little bit unsettling yeah. um, but also extremely exciting because it provides new opportunities and 
We just have to be honest about the fact that, that regulation needs to follow the technological reality and the physical reality and, and, and when the technologies provide complete new ways of doing things, mm. regulation needs to catch up and, mm. um, and, and so there will be some certain, uh, let's say some level of uncertainty going mm. forward as a fundamental feature of this sector and I think the guys that have been working in this sector for a long time, they need to, let's say, get used to this in more because they used to have a much more stable environment around them. Absolutely. I mean, I've been coming to this conference for many years, and I think the topics at this, this year's conference were certainly right up there with, with reflecting the change in their technological environment. Um, do you find then that the regulators are far behind, or are they close behind the sector in terms of providing that framework for you to, to, to operate in this, in this brave new world? Well, you know what? I, I think, uh, honestly speaking, that regulators are also grappling with this with multitude of change that we're seeing. So it's, mm. it's generation that's changing, it's digitalization that's changing, mm. it's everything that's changing at the same time. Electrification is coming on very strongly. And we're going into a, a new uh, analysis uh, uh, exercise, which is about trying to understand if we want to make all this happen at the same time, mm. make sure that more and more customers choose the electric option, make sure that the enormous volumes of, of uh, self-generation do not undermine the fundamental cost recovery of the system. If we want to make sure that you can continue to connect all the stuff to the grid and so on and so forth, mm. what is required in terms, let's say, of, of regulatory signals? Mm. Because one thing is the overall regulatory framework. Mm. The other thing is the uh, tariff setting and, and everything that goes along with that. Mm. And, and this, let's say, is, is really being overhauled, is seeing an a fundamental, let's say, challenge from the old system mm. um, to what we need to do in the future to, to make this accelerated electrification, accelerated decarbonization happen within the next decade or two. On one side, it's a boon for your sector, um, all this electrification, both of transport and heating. But on the other side, you know, if you have this this massive growth in self-consuming, uh, the prosumers, they don't need the services from the all. Maybe they do need some different, but they will need different kinds of services from the energy companies. I think that different services is, is the key word here because mm. um, it's very clear that if you are a normal uh, customer with a house and uh, you get an electric car, you have to have a very big garden and a very big roof <laughs> mm. to, to, let's say, get all the, the, the solar, all the energy from, from your panels uh, to heat your house, to power your appliances and also to power your car. Mm. For most citizens, that's not going to be the case. And then we look at the inner, inner cities where you have um, big residential buildings where, where they just don't have uh, a chance of doing this. So we're going to need the system going forward. And it's really a question of saying, what's the new role of that system? What's the new role of distribution in all this? And, and how do we connect all these things? How do we create a much more uh, bi-directional system? Mm. This is the challenge at hand, and it's a big one. It is big, and it's all in flux. It's all constantly changing, very dynamic. Yeah, uh, yeah these, the, this process of decarbonization, this European uh, objective, part of the issue, Commissioner Cañete uh, addressed this uh, recently, is that we're also importing, especially from the Balkans, but now from Morocco, and we intend to import perhaps from Algeria, Libya, from Northern Africa in general. A lot of this energy, this uh, electricity, will be fossil-fired. 
Does your electric uh, have a position on how we deal with these, this de- decarbonization when we're actually at the same time importing dirty fuels? <laughs> well, I think uh, it's very clear that, that if we decarbonize in Europe and then uh, basically uh, choose a strategy where, where we just produce much less and then import uh, dirty fossil fuels, we lose out on the economy and we lose out on the climate issue. So, so that's like a really bad idea. The thing we need to do is, of course, to make sure that we create a healthy, decarbonized, competitive electricity sector in Europe that can provide what we need in terms of electricity to uh, fuel a dynamic, uh, competitive European economy that has a clear uh, objective of exporting energy uh, as we go forward. That's going to take a while, but I think let's look at the upsides here. We have a very strong wind industry, and if we create a significant build-out for that, we can actually power up to half of uh, Europe's energy needs with wind in the future. Then we're going to need some imports, uh, perhaps, from, uh, from new sources of, of energy in the future. It's not a deal, it's not a good idea going forward to import a lot of fossil fuels. That's, that's bad for the climate, it's bad for the economy. But we will probably rely on some extent of, um, of clean fuels from outside in the future. If we have big producers of, let's say, solar-based hydrogen, solar-based um, liquid fuels in the future from, say, Saudi Arabia or Northern Africa, why not import it? Because at the end of the day, trade is about getting something you can't, can't produce yourself and, and giving something else in return. We could provide a lot of interesting European services in return for some uh, additional energy from the outside. And in regards to the energy union, please correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a different speed. Northern Europe, Southern Europe. Southern Europe still needs to catch up with a lot of the decarbonization trends that are taking hold of Northern Europe. Just to name a few, offshore wind or, or massive self-consumption in Spain. Italy is a little more ahead on that, but Spain is only getting started on that despite the fact we have all this solar. How do we bridge that gap? How do we get Southern Europe or Northern Europe to actually yeah, materialize this energy union? Well, you know, I think uh, it's an important uh, first step to, to acknowledge that there are differences in the resources, as you mentioned. There's a lot of solar in the south. Let's make sure that we really harvest all that solar. In the North Sea, we have a unique offshore wind resource. Looking at the Mediterranean, perhaps the, the potential for offshore wind is slightly lower. There's a nice Atlantic coast that, that surely could be uh, utilized much more for, for Portugal, for France, and for Ireland um, with floating offshore. But I think we'll see different types of renewables dominate in different uh, regions in Europe. And I think um, the first steps of the, of the Spanish government to set really, really aggressive targets for renewables is, is probably a good way forward to make sure that this starts happening. I understand that they've also made some quite uh, preferential rules for solar in the most recent months uh, in Spain. So um, I would say for now, let's see what happens in Spain with all that new regulation if, if it starts taking up and, um, and assess from there. The EU signed off a, a huge package the end of last year. Were you happy with that? I mean, I know you, you had some reservations or some criticisms about certain aspects of it, especially the, the 550 gram rule, etc. I mean, how were you, how do you feel now about the... Uh, the you know, I think we have to, to look at this. We, we were making a plan, a union for 500 million European citizens for how to walk into the energy future. It goes without saying that a big 
energy industry cannot agree on every single comment that mm. um, looking at the overall direction your electric shares it it's a market-based approach it is an approach that um, takes renewables seriously it is one that um, attaches importance to energy efficiency and it's one that also recognizes that electrification is actually an energy efficiency strategy mm. that electrifying also means becoming more efficient also, uh, this energy union and, and the, let's say, related legislation in the area of transport also pushes uh, electrification. So, yes, we had our disagreements, but we also made a very clear point of always saying the overall direction is the right one. Let's discuss some, some issues at the margins of this, because there will be issues with backup capacity, and there are some dilemmas about how fast you do things, how fast you phase out the old before you phase in the new. There are some real dilemmas. The overall direction is the right one. And overall, we have to say we're quite happy with the results because it's going to mean more renewables, more electricity in the future. And, and it's going to mean that Europe moves on to a more climate-friendly future. Christian Ruby, thank you very much for joining this week's pod. And that's about all from Florence. Arrivederci, Firenze. Be sure to follow all the latest market-moving news on montelnews.com and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you and goodbye.